Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. House Budget Committee Chairman Cody Smith has been in his post since 2019. And as he brushes up against term limits, the Carthage Republican has a big announcement on his political future. Smith joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about what he'll be doing in 2024 and his reaction to Governor Mike Parson's line item vetoes. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in St. Louis, not via Zoom, not via hologram, she is St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us also in studio is the representative, is it the 163rd district? That's right. 163 out of 163. I like to say they save the best for last. And who are you? Cody Smith. Oh, good to, good to have you back. Um, so let's just, let's just not bury the lead. There's been a lot of rumors about your 2024 plans. You are term limited. Um, but let me just ask you directly, do you plan on running for state treasurer next year? I am. I'm excited to announce that I'll be seeking the Republican nomination for state treasurer next year. And uh, I come from a business background. I've been a realtor for over 15 years and owned a small business for almost 10. And uh, back in 2013, my wife and I had our son, uh, Charlie, and that really brought a lot of things into focus for me. And I became very frustrated with the uh, red tape and the taxation, excessive taxes that I encountered while trying to build a business and uh, provide for my family. So I decided to get involved in 2016. I ran for state rep and won. And since then, I've uh, worked a lot in fiscal policy and had some success cutting taxes and eliminating public debt and balancing the state budget. And uh, I'd like to continue to take that experience and, and work on fiscal policy from the state, state treasurer's office. Why do you want to run for this post when it's already filled by a Republican Vivek Malik? Sure. So I'm um, passionate about economic freedom and educational freedom. And uh, like I said, I, I've worked a lot on fiscal policy. And, and I've really come to understand that that is really some of the most impactful public policy that can can be managed within state government. And um, I've had some success, as I said, with, with cutting taxes, uh, balancing budgets, and eliminating debt, and that's, that's really what I'm most interested in. Within the state treasurer's office, there are opportunities to continue to work on fiscal policy and, and educational policy as well, uh, a variety of programs that, that the treasurer, treasurer's office administers and sits on various boards and commissions that would provide me the opportunity to do that. 
in a similar vein, what would you do as treasurer that would be noticeably different from Malik, given that he really hasn't had a lot of time to develop a specific policy agenda? Sure. Well, as you said, he's not been there very long, and, and I don't know him well, uh, but I can talk to you about what I would do uh, in the treasurer's office. And, and I would take that same, uh, you know, I have a proven track record of being a, a conservative and a, a fiscal conservative, particularly. I would take that same mentality, that same approach to the state treasurer's office. And, and again, there are lots of opportunities to impact uh, fiscal policy from that office. One of those is the unclaimed property program. Uh, returning taxpayer dollars to taxpayers, uh, which I think is very important. After all, it's it's ultimately their money, and they, no matter what to do with it, then uh, the government or letting it sit in the state treasury. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the empowerment savings account program, the ESA program. Uh, I helped pass the bill to create that program in 2021, and it is a scholarship program that provides for a variety of needs for children's education. And it enables parents to have choice in what those uh, needs might be or how to address those needs more specifically. And that program is, uh, is a great program. It's, it's very new. The fledgling program needs to be fostered and ultimately, I think, expanded. Uh, it's, res- it's, it's working well, but it is restricted. It's restricted uh, in, in several different ways. One of those is that it's uh, only for children with IEPs or individual education plans. Additionally, it's means tested, so not everyone apply, uh, not everyone qualifies based on income. And then, lastly, and most frustratingly, it's restricted by geography. So, uh, as an example, children who live in my hometown of Carthage do not qualify because of where they live. Twelve miles away in the city of Joplin, those children do qualify. And I think that all Missourians deserve access to a world-class education regardless of their zip code. And furthermore, I think parents deserve to have options for their children when it comes to their children's education. You know, with COVID, I think we've learned that uh, that's more important than ever, and it's certainly a passion of mine. So that, that would be a real opportunity to make an impact. So far, though, he has amassed a lot of money, both in his individual account and a political action committee. Um, is there also trepidation that you may be significantly outraised by him, and that may be a challenge for you to unseat somebody who is a not exactly an incumbent because he hasn't been elected to this office, but somebody who is in there now and has a pretty sizable financial war chest at his disposal? Yeah, he's certainly been uh, raising a lot of money. I, too, have had success with raising money in the past and certainly have a, a plan of action to uh run a fully funded, well-funded campaign. And so uh, I think, you know, each each of these campaigns, obviously, I, I believe will be well-funded and be able to deliver the message and give voters the chance to choose uh, who they'd like to hire for the job. So let's talk about your tenure as House Budget Chairman, because you have been in that position longer than most people. Have you been in there for almost five years now? I just finished my fifth legislative session. So what do you think about your tenure as House Budget Chairman is notable or impressive enough to earn you a promotion to statewide office? Well, I think that I have, uh, well, objectively, I have uh, had success, like I said, in cutting taxes, eliminating debt, saving taxpayer dollars. Uh, I've been able to, to work a variety of different uh, packages through the state appropriations process to eliminate public debt. Uh, this year, actually, we eliminated, we, we made our last payment on House Bill 1, which is a public debt. So all, all public debt or general obligation debt in the state of Missouri has, has been retired in my tenure as House Budget Chairman. 
I, I've done a few different things to save taxpayer dollars with uh, various ways of leveraging federal funds and uh, shortening up different timelines on uh, repaying debt. The uh, transportation package that we worked on in my first year as House Budget Chairman, Governor Parson rolled out a plan that um, had some cost of interest uh, to issue road bonds uh, to complete the Roachport Bridge. And I rolled out a plan that would pay for that all of, out of general revenue. And ultimately, we compromised there, but ended up saving $70 million in the process from uh, borrowing less and spending less on debt service. Uh, additionally, I ha I've handled, uh, in last summer in special session, what was called the largest personal income tax cut in the state's history. Uh, passed that legislation after we I had passed a bill earlier that legislative session that would have given $500 million back to Missouri taxpayers. Governor Parson vetoed that bill and called us into special session and, and said that he preferred a permanent tax cut, and we certainly agreed with that and obliged. And I was, it was an honor for me to handle that, uh, that bill personally. And then lastly, like I said, I've, I've balanced, made sure the budget is balanced over the years, and uh, we are living within our means, and, and I've been able to accomplish that. And so those are the things that I think I've, I've done well, and uh, I'd like to take that experience onto the treasurer's office. You know, the last time you were on the program, you were talking about why it was necessary not to fund Medicaid expansion, which was approved by voters in 2020. The state Supreme Court effectively ordered the legislature to fund it. Do you see that entire gambit as a policy failure? I, it's, a, it's an area of concern for me. It's an area of great concern. Uh, the way that unfolded, and it takes a little time to unpack this, I think your lizard, listeners have heard, have heard this repeatedly. I know you covered it very well uh, during the, those course of events, but having passed it at the, at the uh, ballot and then uh, the General Assembly did not appropriate to pay for Medicaid expansion, there's a, there's a provision in our Constitution that says if a ballot question seeks to spend money from the state treasury, then it must have an accompanying funding mechanism. And so uh, many folks, including myself, thought that that provision was unconstitutional because it did not include that funding me mechanism, that the expansion population that is now covered by the Missouri Constitution or those folks are eligible under the Missouri Constitution does not have any tax increase or fee collection or anything at all that would go to pay for that. So in my opinion, as an appropriator, that the the cost of that should be subject to appropriation, and that is a, a something that's at the will of the General Assembly. The power of appropriation is solely given to the legislature. And so we went through the legislative process, and ultimately the legislature decided not to fund Medicaid expansion, despite it having passed. Uh, in my mind, the constitutional amendment provided eligibility, but eligibility without funding doesn't equal coverage. Eligibility plus an appropriation does. And so uh, after the legislati legislative session concluded, there was a court court uh, case filed, uh, lawsuit filed, and it worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, which ultimately said that um, because of the eligibility determined in the Constitution, if you're going to have a Medicaid program, these folks need to be included in that. And so the department uh, went ahead and, uh, and offered coverage to them, and we've had Medicaid expansion in the state uh, since then. And, and it is uh, a 90-10 program, so it's 90% funded by the federal government, 10% uh, funded by the state. Um, I just looked it up this morning. We are at about um, 350,000 people already on expansion at the time. 
estimates were about 275, so we've already eclipsed that, and the total cost is uh, in excess of 300. I think it's three and a half billion dollars for Medicaid expansion, and so it's it's already more expensive than what we what we thought it was going to be, and obviously the 10 percent of that, the state's portion, is a lot of money, 350 million dollars. Is a lot, and so the sustainability of that, of that is a concern. Uh, if the federal government or or Congress, and in its infinite wisdom, should ever choose to change the federal portion of that or reduce it, then the state would be on the hook for even more of that. And all of this is enshrined in our state's constitution, which is particularly challenging as a legislator. Uh, we cannot go and fix any 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 unintended consequences or any anything that we'd like to to try to change about. Medicaid expansion or anything else that's in the in the Constitution, without another constitutional amendment, which would require a vote of the people. So, uh, you know, it's clearly not the best way to legislate, and um, all kinds of problems uh, abound. So, in your opinion, has Medicaid expansion been as harsh on the budget as Republicans were claiming? It seems like there's still kind of you know a massive surplus, even with thousands upon thousands of people joining the program. Yeah. So, actually, we've we've leveraged federal funding to make Medicaid expansion in Missouri 100% federally funded for the, for the short term. Uh, think, I think through the CARES Act, the uh, Congress offered states an incentive, an extra incentive to expand Medicaid. And we, we just so happened to time it right, where we got about a billion dollars for having expanded Medicaid and federal funds. And we took that money and set it aside and said, we're going to use that to pay for the state's portion of Medicaid expansion for as long as it lasts. And that's that's been the case for a couple of years now that we've had Medicaid expansion. Uh, so when you, act, when you ask if this is going to be as impactful as we thought it would be, I actually think it will be more so when that, especially when that money runs out. Uh, as I mentioned, we've already got more folks on the Medicaid expansion rolls than we anticipated. And so when we are done with spending that federal money, the state will pick up that portion. At this point, it would be in excess of $350 million, which is a large uh, chunk of change to take from one fiscal year to the next and have to pick that up. You mentioned the number of people enrolled eclipsing the estimates, but isn't the redetermination process, isn't that going to also decrease those numbers? On expansion, you know, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, on the Medicaid population at large, it will. Uh, certainly, as you're alluding to under the CARES Act, uh, we were unable to remove anyone from the Medicaid rolls during COVID. And during the uh, public emergency, that, that was as a result of COVID or declared because of COVID. And that has come to an end, and we are in the process of redetermining that now. I'm unsure about how that might affect the expansion population specifically, but I, I will acknowledge that we have about 1.5 million enrollees in the Medicaid program now, and we expect that number to come back down uh, after redetermination. So hopefully Medicaid expansion will be the same. So you have actually put forward a constitutional amendment that basically would make Medicaid expansion subject to appropriation, which means that if the legislature didn't want to fund it, it would go away. First of all, am I describing that accurately before I get to my second part of my question? You are. That's one of the provisions that I have uh, worked on with that joint resolution. Um, others would be work requirements for Medicaid and a, a state residency requirement to qualify. So let's just say that passed and the legislature actually followed through and defunded Medicaid expansion. Would Republicans really want to be the people to have kicked 350,000 people off of Medicaid, considering the last time that happened in 2005 when Matt Blunt did it? That was also the last time Republicans lost ground in the legislative, the legislature and actually paid a pretty big political price for that. 
Well, I think we're, you know, it's important to talk about the different populations that these programs are serving. And so Medicaid expansion specifically is for working-aged, able-bodied adults. And Medicaid historically has been for some of the most vulnerable in our population, uh, aged, blind, and disabled folks and children. And so uh, when you ask if we want to kick those people off of the of the rolls, I think it's more of a question of how would we prioritize the state's resources in a future context. And, and if we ran into budgetary shortfalls, um, because we do have a balanced budget requirement, the question would then become, do we want to pay for quote unquote free health care for able-bodied working aged adults, or do we want to use those resources to spend it on public education as example, uh, public safety, or again, those those folks I mentioned, which are, are the most vulnerable in our society that, that arguably need services more so than the folks that, that can work, but for whatever reason do not. So I want to shift subjects a little bit to the House budget or just to the budget process. So something that's been kind of noticeable is that the House determines its budget. It sends it over to the Senate. Money gets left on the table at times due to the balancing rule or however you want to, you know, I'm sure you'll talk about that process. And then the Senate spends more money. <laughs> it comes back. You guys find a lot of compromises, but a lot of times House Democrats side with the Senate on some of those items. And it seems that House Republicans kind of not lose because you agree to the budget through the conference process, but you're not getting everything you want. So do you feel like this is an example of House Republicans, you know, yourself, other members on budget shooting themselves in the foot by doing it this way? I don't think so. I think, you know, the, the Missouri House has consistently been, in my time there and, and, and years prior, been the, um, crafted the smallest budgets in the state's process. And so we'll have the governor's recommendations. Oftentimes the House budget will be smaller than the governor's recommendations. And then the Senate, as you said, will end up spending more in their version of the plan than the House did. And we ultimately compromise somewhere in the middle. And it's a collaborative process. It can be a frustrating process, but it is one that, um, you know, the different stages and the different elements of that process are important to the ultimate conclusion. And so I don't have any regrets for, for crafting smaller budgets, for finding ways to cut spending and, uh, you know, invest in certain things that, that I think are, are pri- should be priorities. Uh, even if at the end of the day, the budget is larger than it was when it left the Missouri House, I do think it's important to go through that exercise and show folks what can be done, uh, what is within the realm of possible with less, less government spending. Do, do you think that if you were able to get House Democrats on board with a lot of your ideas that there could be more of an even playing field? Because it's just sort of, I know this is a really inside baseball observation, but like as a numbers game, if the House Democrats join with a bipartisan block in the Senate, it seems like the House Republicans are going to lose almost every time just because that's the way math works. So is is this a missed opportunity for bipartisan collaboration just as a means of strategy? As you mentioned, this is a this is a quite an inside baseball question and a good one. Uh, it's an important one. And this is this is something that I I deal with. You know, this is this is my primary role in the General Assembly and, and something that I, I deal with a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a missed opportunity. I would certainly invite collaboration with anyone in the legislature that wants to. I have found that House Republicans and House Democrats have very different views of how this should work and what it should look like. Uh, House Republicans, we, we generally want to uh, leave money on the bottom line, uh, not expend every dollar that we have coming in. 
focus on sound budgeting practices, prioritize things like public education, public safety, transportation infrastructure, and less on social services programs. Uh, the House Democrats, on you know, conversely, would I seemingly prioritize some of those programs over some of the other things, or argue that we can afford to pay for everything uh, in in conjunction. And so we do have disagreements on that philosophically, and that's led to uh, breakdowns on on those partnerships that you mentioned. But at the end of the day, uh, we we do work with House Democrats, we do work with Senate uh, Senate Democrats as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the process. And, and uh, we'll be right back after this quick break with House Budget Chairman Cody Smith. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with House Budget Chairman Cody Smith, who just announced on our show that he's running for state treasurer. Um, But I want to talk about uh, what happened with uh, the governor and this current budget in fiscal year 2024. What do you think of the fact that Governor Mike Parson decided to veto almost $555 million worth of items through line item vetoes in this budget? Well, I certainly disagreed with some of those line item vetoes. Uh, You know, I am the House Budget Chairman. I am not a dictator. It is certainly a collaborative process. There are things that I really think are good investments in the state budget. There are things that I would prioritize less so. Some of those vetoes he made, I would uh, disagree with more strongly than others, particularly ones around transportation infrastructure and public safety. Uh, But it is the governor's prerogative to use the line item veto, and we've seen him do that over the last couple years. And um, this is part of the process. It's part of the checks and balances that are designed intentionally between the executive and legislative branch. It leads to a healthy healthier process, healthier outcome. And uh, so I'm not particularly surprised by that. And uh, there, there are some things that I disagree with. I will note that after the end of the uh, budget process this year, we left over $2 billion unexpended uh, in the state treasury. And that is, th- there's no precedent for that. We, we generally, if we can put back a couple hundred million dollars for uh, a rainy day, we, we consider that a great success. Is that just $2 billion in general revenue? It is. And, and and that's not the whole story because there are other federal funds that are are in the Treasury as well. With. Right. Which is why it often gets described as like, what, Sarah, like an $8 billion surplus. But some of that is, is money that mm-hmm. has to go to specific things and not general revenue, which is fungible. So continue. It is. And, and with the COVID money, the CARES Act and ARPA that, that Congress sent to the states, uh, when we talk about our surplus, sometimes those dollars get uh, lumped in with those big figures. And so it sounds like we're sitting on a, a pile of money, which we are, uh, but it's not quite as simple as that. And and again, with the governor's vetoes, I, I appreciate that he is keeping an eye on the state's budget health, uh, fiscal health, and our credit rating. However, I, I disagree that, that this is the difference between us uh, being able to manage that or not. We still have a lot of money unexpended, so much so that I think we could talk about a tax rebate again or uh, future tax cuts as we continue to work through the process. You know, lawmakers from both parties have expressed uh, ex- 
frustration with some of these line and vetoes, especially because of the surplus. So what do you think of that argument? Are you expecting to get a lot of phone calls from lawmakers in the next uh, upcoming weeks leading up to veto session? I have had a lot of calls from lawmakers, and uh, certainly there are interests, uh, folks are interested in particular projects. We, we invested in a lot of infrastructure projects across the state of, of different types. They're transportation infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, public safety infrastructure, and seeking to partner with various political subdivisions across the state to help uh, build out various types of infrastructure. So you can imagine that that local area representatives or senators may be upset about a veto in their respective district, and they're very passionate about those projects. So I've heard from a lot of those folks and and uh, expect to hear from many more. We're going to get into that a little more in a second, but I do, you know, what you mentioned infrastructure, you know, one of the things that was vetoed was money to go towards studying improvements on I-44. Given that I-44 goes directly into the Joplin metro area, what do you think of this decision? I was disappointed by that veto. I, uh, especially after having fully funded the repair and third lane of uh, I-70 in uh, from you know in its completion and found a way to to try to to complete that project in its entirety there were a couple of pieces on 44 an environmental study and some repairs to a particular area in uh, Springfield that I thought were particularly important there's a lot of congestion a lot of accidents through there so uh, as you as you mentioned 44 comes right through my district and uh, really touches a lot of communities across the state. It's a very important artery, uh, arguably as important as I-70. And so I didn't think it was uh, too much to ask to address some things on 44 as we are uh, doing such major projects on I-70. I think we need to prepare for I-44 to be next. This was the first step in that. So in September, you know, you all are going to meet again for veto session, and that includes the possibility of budget vetoes. So can you talk about how the override process for budget items work? Would you need to actually ask for something to be overridden? Could that be anybody within the House? I kind of just want to talk about the process. Yeah, so those override motions will start in the House because they are House bills, as Jason noted. All the appropriations bills are House bills this year and traditionally so. And so they will need to start in the House. And that is what we call a privileged motion. Motion. So any any member can make that motion for the override. Traditionally, it is the chairman who is the, the sponsor of the bills or someone that, that is delegated to uh, that, that, you know, the chairman supports the, the override in the, in the motion that that, that that member would be making. Uh, so we will have, you know, and we've seen the House override budget line out of vetoes for the last couple of years. And, and I think maybe every year that I've been in the, in the Missouri House, that's happened. Uh, and I expect that, that we'll have some of those motions made in September. On the Senate side, it's a little different. Uh, they, they all, it is also a privileged motion on the Senate side, but they have a tradition that the appropriate chairman is the one to make those motions. And they really got wrapped around the axle last year uh, around that conversation and ultimately uh, did uphold their tradition. But none of the overrides were uh, voted. Well, they were all voted down, I guess you'd say. So, so none of them ended up, happen- uh, ended up happening. I suspect we may see something uh, you know, in the Senate play out where uh, they have that conversation again. Do you, we're also talking about a different appropriations chairman now. We have Senator Lincoln Huff as opposed to Senator Dan Hegeman. Are you anticipating maybe Huff would be maybe a little more willing? I know I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball, but I'm curious kind of your thoughts on like the differences between the two chairmen. 
Yeah, I haven't talked to Senator Huff about these overrides or or the, these vetoes more specifically. Um, I worked a lot with Senator Hageman. He he and I worked together for four years, and and he's an absolute prince of a man, and and uh, I really enjoyed working with him. He he felt very strongly that we, you know, that over veto veto budget line item overrides were not in good form, and so he never did want to to do that. Uh, senator Huff is is a different senator. I don't really know. Uh, this is his first year as, as a probes chair. I don't really know how he might react to this, but I would invite you to probably ought to let him uh, tell you how, how he feels about those things. I haven't talked to him yet. I, I know that we'll be talking soon. So this again gets into another. We're just we're just. This is the wonkiest uh, campaign <laughs> announcement uh, podcast we've probably done. It's good for treasurer though, talking budget and money, right? No, it, makes, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. So, what would happen if a, a veto override was successful? Would Governor Parsons' administration have to fund the project first of all, or could they just be like, okay? We have the appropriating power, but we're just not going to ever release money for this, or we're just never going to start this because we want to save it. Yeah. Well, at some point, Jason, this becomes a legal question, and I'm certainly not qualified <laughs> to answer those. But, you know, I can only speculate. Um, we've never seen that happen under unified Republican government. So so it would be uncharted territory to some degree. Now, it has happened under Governor Nixon. The Republican legislator, legislature overrode him. I think you then call into question the powers of the withhold, uh, and you also call into question, you know, what happens, as you mentioned, they have an appropriate, appropriation law is authority to spend, but it is not necessarily a mandate to spend. And so, uh, you know, at some point that becomes a, a function of the executive. I'm glad you mentioned the withholds, because a governor can withhold money if, like, they need to balance a budget which I think is what I think not only Governor Nixon did, but I think Governor Greitens actually did that pretty early in his tenure. But that was because there was a, like a legitimate shortfall. There's not a shortfall here. We've, we've established the fact that there's a $2 billion surplus. So it seems like the, the legal justification for withholds becomes a lot murkier when you legitimately have the money to pay for some of these projects. Is that kind of what you were getting at with sort of the uncharted legal territory? It is, yeah. This is, this is a, again, like I said, it becomes a legal question at some point. And, and I, you know, I have a role in this and, and, and appropriate. And if, and if those vetoes are overridden, uh, I would then turn to the executive to see how he would react. Uh, I want to move on to the budget future. So obviously, the past couple of budgetary cycles have featured lawmakers spending a lot of money. Is there any indication on how next year's budget may proceed? Yeah, revenues have uh, started to flatten a little bit. We went through really un unprecedented revenue growth, and, and that, I think, is, is due to a variety of factors. Uh, inflation is one of them. Clearly, uh, we've, we've seen inflation across the economy. That has affected state revenues. Uh, we have had an influx of federal money, which certainly has inflated the budget. But I think it's it's worth noting that under Republican leadership, we have cut taxes over the last several years and still seen revenues increase. And I think that at the end of the day, it's important to remember that, and I and I believe very strongly that that less taxation leads to economic prosperity, which in fact can turn around and support revenue growth. So. We've seen that uh, revenue growth despite having cut taxes consistently over the course of the last several years. Uh, now with this anomalous economy that we've seen with the pandemic and, and the subsequent reaction to that, 
it's a little unclear about how things will, will go will go going forward, but we have seen revenues kind of adjust back to normal. And I think we're going to see much more modest growth in the next couple of years at least. I know these last few budget years, a lot of the emphasis on spending, if it's been projects, has been a lot of one-time projects with the idea of not wanting to set up programs that would continue to take money, you know, once growth starts to slow or flatten, as we've been talking about. So do you think the state is set up where if some of that uh, surplus got depleted, that some of the programs that lawmakers started will be able to continue? Or do you feel like you've pretty much shorted up pretty well and that that won't happen? Yeah, we've been very careful to fund one-time projects with one-time money, or or more accurately to say that we, we've been very careful not to spend one-time dollars on ongoing need. And so with the exception, you know, Medicaid expansion, as I mentioned, was one of those things where we have one-time dollars. We're using that to supplant the state's portion of Medicaid expansion, but we know full well that when that money runs out, we will have what we call a a general revenue pickup where we have to start paying for that out of pocket, so to speak, rather than paying for it with federal dollars. Uh, That's really the only instance where we have used any one-time money for any ongoing need. We've been very careful to keep bright lines between those two different categories. And we've seen... uh, you know, an influx, like I said, of, of billions of dollars in one-time money. And so we've we've had the challenge of, of trying to invest those as wisely as possible to try to prioritize across the state's needs in a way that won't lead to ongoing spending increases, but will make the maximum impact. And that's that's been challenging, but I feel like we've done a good job with it. You know, there have been calls for raises in teacher pay and for uh, home health care providers. Those are ongoing, you know, costs. I know that happened a little bit this year, but are you, is that kind of on your radar for next year already? It is. Uh, prior to the last couple years, teacher pay has been a solely a local issue. Uh, Schools in Missouri are funded through local, what we call local effort. Those are local taxes and state state revenues. Uh, and oftentimes it's roughly 50-50, 50-50 local uh, and, and half state portion. And so we have let, uh, you know, as we like to say, Missouri being a local control state, we've let those local districts determine how much they should pay their teachers out of the money that we send them and, and also the money that they raise locally. Uh, two years ago, not this last session, but the year before, Governor Parson rolled out a plan that would help kind of subsidize starting teacher pay. And we, we uh, expanded upon that a little bit this year. And so those, that's really the only area that we delve into teacher pay, and it really is, is uh, centered on starting teacher pay. But still yet, uh, mostly that is a local issue, and I think it should stay that way. I think local control, with local control comes local responsibility, and teacher pay should certainly be prioritized, but that's on the local level to decide. Uh, as far as you mentioned home health care worker pay, uh, we pay indirectly uh, through Medicaid, um, lots of different types of providers. And so we don't determine, again, similarly to teacher pay, we don't tell providers how much to pay their employees. We don't don't, uh, necessarily pay uh, to provide certain rates. Now, we do try to estimate what the cost of that labor will be and try to compensate in such a way that that enables them to at least break even or uh, not lose a lot of money on the Medicaid program. But we don't we don't dictate to them how much they pay as well. So, ever since I've been there, each of those sectors of the of the healthcare, uh, each of each of the different types of providers within the healthcare sector have advocated for higher rates that would enable them to pay their folks more. And I think that's just kind of a perpetual thing. 
we've uh, made great strides when it comes to uh, what we call DD providers. Those are developmental disability providers. Uh, We've really made great strides to increase those rates. We've increased nursing home rates, those types of things. And we've done it in a way that's that's responsible, uh, just kind of a uh, taking steps at a time and uh, keeping it manageable. I think we've done a good job of that. Well, thank you so much for coming to St. Louis to not only break some news on the show, but talk a lot about the budget process. And by the and yeah, and we're definitely also going to have your Republican opponent on the podcast just so the voters can listen to both of you and make a decision uh, while hearing your views and and your aspirations. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. How can people find out more about your campaign or more about what you're doing on the House Budget Committee, either in social media or otherwise? Sure. So on Twitter, uh, my handle is Cody4Mo. That's C-O-D-Y and the number four and M-O. On Facebook, it's Cody4Missouri, all spelled out. One thing I will mention, Jason, is that the House website, uh, house.mo.gov, is is uh, we pride ourselves in transparency, and we live stream all of the committee hearings, all of the floor session. Uh, you can go there and read legislation. You can track legislation through the process. You can learn a lot about the state's budget, and you can tune in and watch as your legislator legislature works. And uh, that's something, like I said, we go to great length to provide that transparency, and it's really a wealth of, of information there. So we'd encourage po- folks to visit that website as well. Well, thank you very much, and until next time, so long. Thank you. smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.